I'm Quinn Lundquist. And I'm Lindsay Grove. And this is Viral, a podcast for the public's health. We talk about the history of public health, plagues, and the people who work to protect our health. Today, we're going to talk about climate change and how it impacts public health. My health and your health. All right, let's do this. Awesome. Anytime the term climate change or global warming is used, there's usually silence at a dinner table, teeth grinding, or a ruined first date. How did a scientific term create so much social tension? Politics. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. The P word. The... Another, <laughs> another the... word another... guaranteed to ruin dates. Yeah. <laughs> So before we talk about the politics around uh, around climate change, let's talk about what it actually is. Climate change is the changing of the Earth's climate. Whoa! Hey using there. the term in the definition. All right. All right. Great. According to the CDC, this means change in weather pa- weather patterns in the form of severe drought and storms, heat waves, uh, sea level rise, air pollution, and flooding. There's overwhelming scientific consensus that this is happening, and it will get worse over time. So many skeptics will say that this is just another period in the Earth's history where the planet is warming. This has happened seven other times in the past 650,000 years, according to NASA, actually. However, what makes this instance so alarming is how rapidly this is happening. There's a good chance, and I mean like over a 95% probability sort of good chance that this warming is due to human activity. But like really? Yeah. Yes, really. (laughs) Yeah. I mean – Says who? Says NASA, says the overwhelming majority of scientists who work in the field of climate, meteorology, atmospheric – Science. I don't know. A lot of like really smart people that should be telling us these things. And that that's honestly good enough for me, but apparently not for a lot of other people. Which is unfortunate because climate change will affect all of us, and unfortunately, it will it will affect some more than others. In an article in Scientific American, doctors are already seeing the effects of climate change in different parts of our country. For instance, there has been an increase in patients diagnosed with Lyme disease in in places like Pennsylvania and other states with tick populations. Hotter weather with a longer season allows tick populations to flourish, increasing the chances of transmitting Lyme disease. Mm. And Lyme disease isn't the only health issue related to climate change that doctors are seeing. Increases in wildfires, air pollution, and longer allergy seasons are affecting asthma and pulmonary disease, as well as other vector-borne illnesses, which are beginning to creep up as wetter, hotter seasons breed more mosquitoes and other awful insects that transmit diseases. Yeah, it's it's not great. Um, As a Floridian... We are so screwed. We're very used to mosquitoes, but I would... (laughs) Much rather not have more of them. Yeah, or more diseases related to mosquitoes. Right. It's like they're not – it's like mosquitoes are already annoying enough without transmitting awful diseases. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like chicken yunga, West Nile, dengue, Zika. Oh, do you mean uh, Burger King's new chicken yunga sandwich? The, yeah. The new chicken gunya sure. deluxe? 
Are we just both really hungry? And I'm very hungry. Yeah, me actually. Too. Me too. Actually. Or uh, maybe the uh, Taco Bell's new chicken gunya dipping strips. <laughs> yeah, Wait, I thought that they just started serving dengue wings. They... Is that a that's a sauce, right? <laughs> it's a sauce. With it's a kinda... mm. oh boy, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so when I talk about these doctors, for instance, they're actually there. There are so many doctors that are actually so concerned that they formed the Medical Consortium on Climate Change and Health to talk about these issues and propose solutions to these, uh, to, you know, addressing some of these um, health issues. So women and other marginalized populations are at particular risk for negative health outcomes related to climate change. Because, of course they are. Like, because they can't get enough of a break. Yeah. In terms of, like, um, the wage gap. Yeah. Health inequities, just like uh, general all crappiness related to being in a marginalized group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, why not add climate change to that mix? Yeah. So, air pollution is particularly bad in urban areas, and as climate change impacts air pollution, this will increase exposure to toxic chemicals, which can impact fetal development and overall maternal health. Minority populations, which are already experiencing poor health outcomes, as we just talked about, could be subject to increased injury and fatalities caused by severe weather, extreme heat, and environmental degradation, according to the Centers uh, for Disease Control. Hmm. So while all of this seems impossible to tackle and, frankly, super depressing, uh, there are changes that we can make now to help slow the effects of climate change and protect vulnerable communities. Fortunately, many of these solutions are things that we kind of already do and advocate for. All right. Well. Hey, guys. We're kind of ahead of the curve on this one. Hey. We know the things. We just have to do the things. Yes. Cleaner, healthier communities through better urban planning and physical movement can help decrease our carbon footprint. Promoting renewable energy can help decrease fossil fuel use and and in turn combat air pollution. These are small things, but they are still powerful. However, they're not enough. Political will and community advocacy are what's needed to educate and empower lawmakers to act. Local communities like St. Petersburg, our home, have pledged to increase their sustainability efforts. But more movement is needed at the state and national level, as all of us are very, very much aware. Are you wondering how you can influence policy? Yes. Oh my gosh! Well, we have some ideas. Tell me more! First... We're actually interviewing two awesome public health and climate change advocates to help inspire you to action. Ooh. Yes. Second, we would encourage you to check out Public Health Awakened for more ideas on how to educate your community on climate change and many other public health-related topics. They have great fact sheets, informational resources specific to the sector of public health you're working in, and provide frequent updates on current legislative actions. So... Don't get discouraged. While we can easily feel powerless in public health, our strength is in our passion for helping others and using evidence to support our causes. These are powerful tools in changing the hearts and minds of communities and policymakers. So don't fret. You're not alone. You're an important, vital part of, the, of public health professionals that care just as much as you do about our future. Yeah. Does that make you feel a little bit better? It does make me feel a little bit better. Good. So one of the things 
for me that um, that helps try to is to try and compartmentalize this huge issue into very specific outcomes. Okay. Things that can happen. That makes sense. And I think you can probably have a little more success at you know the dinner table with your in-laws or whatever. Or if uh, you're just talking with people, um, friends that you know or, or family, that you don't just say something general about climate change, but uh, educate yourself and find out like a very specific thing, like we talked about. How uh, allergy seasons may mm-hmm. be changing, or um, the mosquito-borne diseases, or very um, specific, you know, devastating um, extreme weather events and mm-hmm. things like that. Or uh, if you're a farmer and the seasons are becoming more unpredictable, it's hard to try and get a consistent, um, successful crop yield. And there's a lot of things that kind of affect the chain of the right. food system or the water system mm-hmm. or um, any number of things. But tying it to more specific outcomes is probably a more successful strategy. And I think that a lot of politicians um, and progressives could do a better job of being specific about what kinds of um, changes need to be made in order to kind of turn the the tide in in a better direction. Yeah. And, you know, I I think a lot about our interview with um, the Rescue Change, a Rescue Change, a Behavior Change Agency um, Mm -hmm. that uh, Jeff, he talked about messaging, right? And how we frame things to certain people who have a, let's say, a a different worldview, right? Mm -hmm. And he used a specific example in Georgia about how the Tea Party actually came to bat for for people who were wanting more solar panels. But the way that they the way that they came on board was framing it as we want energy independence, yeah. right? And and jobs for people who work to install solar panels. Right. So, yes, like that doesn't have a very specific public health message behind it, but it can galvanize people for something that will ultimately impact public health. Because we also know that there are things that impact public health that also can benefit the economy. Yeah. It's just really a matter of thinking about who your audience is and how you can gain their support. And I think we don't do a good enough job because we really want people to change their behavior for really altruistic reasons. Mm -hmm. But we can't dictate to people (laughs) why they change their behavior, right? So, yeah, I think that's something that we need to do a better job of is really thinking about – yeah, how we frame things like this, especially with something like climate change, which is so divisive for really crazy reasons. Mm-hmm. So, but you're right. And I also, I totally agree with you that putting it in terms that are very specific, because climate change in and of itself is a very nebulous kind of like really hard thing to wrap your head around a lot of people like they hear global warming they're like well why wouldn't i want longer summers you know and it's like that's not what it is but we're all not climate scientists to be able to sit down and really you know explain to people what the mechanics of climate change is but we can say climate change is bad because x y and z and And you can educate yourself to a certain extent yeah um but like 
when I go to the dentist and I open my mouth and I put a certain amount of trust in the person who is going to examine me and put sharp tools in there, um, I have a trust in them and their education and background that they know what they're doing. And I think for some people, the trust has been lost in in the climate scientists that they're making um, that they're making decisions and coming up with evidence based on some already preconceived idea of what they want to find out. But the overwhelming majority of the science has a consensus already. Yeah. So it's, it's happening. Yeah. And actually, it's happening right now. I just read an article about how the Arctic, or I'm sorry, Antarctica is actually melting faster than what they had anticipated, and there's a crack the size of Delaware. Um, or actually, no, it's a piece the size of Delaware that's going to break off soon. Oh. So. <sighs> but it's okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, why don't we get to our interviews? Yes, we are going to interview Linda Rudolph. Uh, she is a MD, but she mm-hmm. also is a public health professional working specifically in public health and climate change. Yep. And? And we are going to uh, also interview Dana Lazarus, and she is a community organizer um, who has a, a passion for environmental justice. And so we're going to talk, um, kind of get the science perspective and also a perspective on advocacy. Awesome. Um, We're also going to make sure to post links to Public Health Awakened and some of the articles that were cited in the uh, in my discussion that I that I just talked about. Uh, So if people have further questions or want to check out some of these sources, I definitely recommend checking out Public Health Awakened. They talk about all sorts of different uh, public health topics that are related to current um, legislative action. Like I said before, Um, right now they're really focused on immigration and SNAP. Uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or commonly known as food stamps, as well as Medicaid cuts. So check them out. They've got a great Twitter. Um, They really want to help empower public health professionals to speak with their senators and just really get out there and really fight for better policy when it comes to public health. Cool. Awesome. Enjoy. But uh, we have a couple of questions related to climate change and public health and how we can kind of make that connection and some of the major issues that are going on in the field of climate and health. And then we had a couple questions about you because um, part of our show is trying to also introduce the general public to the public health workforce. Great. Um, Does that all sound okay? That sounds fine. Great. Okay, Great. so I guess we'll go ahead and uh, and get started. Sure. Uh, okay, so obviously we're talking about climate change and public health, and I think we kind of wanted to start on the individual level. So what are some things that Americans, that they're experiencing right now or are or will experience soon as a result of climate change? Climate change is considered the greatest health challenge of this century by health professionals all over the world because it has so many different kinds of impacts on people's health. Here in the United States, we're already seeing people having 
worsened problems with asthma because rising temperatures increase levels of smog. We are seeing more illness and deaths associated with extreme heat, and we're seeing longer and more severe allergy seasons as changes in temperature and precipitation lengthen the pollen production season for plants. And of course, we're also seeing the impacts of extreme weather events other than heat on people who are losing their houses or being injured in floods or hurricanes or other extreme storms like such as um superstorm sandy which we know those events are increasing in frequency and severity as a result of climate change um we'll have many more impacts on agriculture and uh those impacts are likely to cause rising food prices that will make it harder, particularly for low-income people, to buy healthy food. And um, we've already seen some of the impacts of drought that make it harder for people to access clean drinking water. Those impacts are likely to worsen. Yeah, and those are all really serious issues. And I think Another thing that I that I read about in researching for this this episode was um, the potential for vector borne viruses. Um, in in talking about thinking mosquito borne illnesses uh, as ticks. yeah or ticks with Lyme disease um, as the seasons become more warm or more wet. That's right. And the other scary thing about vector-borne diseases is that these changes in temperature and rainfall patterns are also allowing some kinds of mosquitoes that weren't in particular areas to move into those areas. So, for example, the 80s Egypti mosquito that carries Mm -hmm. chikungunya and dengue fever and Zika that we know causes very severe birth defects is moving into areas that it hasn't present uh, prior been. So uh, that's a very big concern as well. Climate change affects the social and the environmental determinants of health. And you mentioned things like clean air, safe drinking water, sufficient food and secure shelter, as well as more unpredictable things like extreme weather events. Um, What are some ways that public health professionals are studying this? And what are some potential um, solutions or things that uh, public health professionals are recommending that we do? Well, one of the exciting things about climate change is that the solutions for climate change are also solutions that make our communities much healthier. So we can really improve the health of our communities by implementing climate solutions. If we switch from dirty fossil fuel-based energy, like coal and natural gas, Mm -hmm. to clean renewable energy, we can significantly reduce air pollution and all of its impacts. If we walk and bike and use public transit more and stop using 
um, gasoline-powered automobiles as our major transportation form, especially for short mm-hmm. trips, we reduce air pollution, but we also increase physical activity in our daily lives, and that will reduce cardiovascular disease and diabetes and osteoporosis and obesity. And if we reduce meat consumption and 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 consume local, sustainably grown produce, we reduce methane from cattle, and we reduce transportation greenhouse gas emissions from moving food around, and we increase access to healthy foods like fruits and vegetables that um, really will increase our health in a variety of ways as well. What about the the issue of climate change um, speaks to your background in public health? I've worked as a preventive medicine physician for many decades now, and climate change is such an important health issue. It's critical that we reduce greenhouse gas emissions now so that we don't lock in catastrophic climate change that will have impacts on our health that will be very hard for us to adapt to. Mm-hmm. So climate change is sort of sort of the quintessential public health problem that needs early prevention and where we can take actions that will improve the health of our communities and improve health inequities because the conditions that create climate change, traffic that causes air pollution, air pollution from refineries and other dirty industries, um, those kinds of conditions also create health inequities. And we know that climate change disproportionately impacts people of color and low-income communities. So right. there's all these opportunities for um co-benefits where we address climate change and health that just bring together a lot of my own efforts over the last decades to prevent chronic disease and address very persistent and stark health inequities. So speaking of co-benefits, I know that um, you work in in the field of uh, health in all policies as a framework for um, kind of bringing certain issues together. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain what health in all policies is to someone who might not know uh, sort of the public health industry jargon. We know now that the conditions in which people live, work, play, learn, those living conditions are really what drives our health. And we know that those living conditions are shaped by political decisions and um, our culture and decisions that are made in agencies that aren't typically thought to be health agencies. So transportation agencies are deciding where freeways will go. And so health in all policies is really a concept that 
we need to em embed health and equity into the decision-making process across all sectors so that when we're making decisions about housing policy or about agriculture policy or about energy policy or transportation policy, decision-makers are aware of and informed about how those decisions impact health and equity. Right. So for like if you're imagining giving somebody, a policymaker, an idea or a proposal for legislation, one of the first things they might ask is, oh, how much is this going to cost? And with health and all policies, it's it's like trying to get them to also consider not just how much it will cost or what the economic or environmental impact would be, but also what will it do for the health of my constituents? Exactly. And of course, because health is about our health care costs are about, um, you know, 16 or 18 percent of GDP, mm -hmm. those decisions also have a big impact on cost and on the economy, because when we prevent illness, we also prevent health care costs. Mm -hmm. And it used to be that urban, you, th you think about urban planning, right? Urban planning mm -hmm. used to be intertwined with health because of the hygiene issue. So, you know, now that those are sort of siloed now, we're trying to get back to the, not just looking at urban planning, but, you know, looking at all of the different built environment, social environment, and even the economic environment and how those play into, you know, public health impact. Right public health agencies all over the country are increasingly working with their planners, with their housing agencies, with their agricultural commissioners to partner together and collaborate because there's so many ways in which we can improve health and improve mobility or improve housing affordability that, that, um, help our communities economically and address health and equity. So uh, we just have one more question for you. And um, what we like to do with this, with this last question is we want to try and show uh, people that our scientists are, are people too. And, and uh, I want to know kind of what you are reading or enjoying um, what's on your nightstand these days? It could be public health related or not. Um, well, I like to spend a lot of my free time outdoors and Some. enjoying our beautiful environment. Me too. And I just came back from a wonderful trip to the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Utah. Ooh, awesome. where we hiked every day in beautiful country. And I was extremely grateful that that beautiful landscape was being preserved in the National Monument. So I've been doing some reading about National Monuments and and how wonderful it is that right now we still have all of these beautiful places that are for anyone in the public to enjoy. And, and one of the great things about being 
in the National Monument or in some place like Zion is just that we have these lands set aside for all people that live in the U.S. to enjoy in perpetuity. And I hope that the in perpetuity remains. Yeah. Yes, we uh, same. We feel the same way. Uh, Quinn and I both rock climb and, you know, uh, having access, you know, to such a beautiful piece of nature and being able to interact with it you know, in such a different way, like through rock climbing or through hiking, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that has such a profound impact on mental health, on physical health, you know, and you're right. It's meant for everybody. And, um, we also hope that it, you know, continues (laughs) to be accessible. So I'm definitely going to add that park to my, to my bucket list because I've not spent very much time out Mm -hmm. West. So, well, thank you so much for, you know, taking time out of your busy day to, uh, answer some of our questions and yeah, you've been a wealth of information. So thanks again. Sure. Dana. Hello. I can hear you now. Hi. Hi, I'm Lindsay. I I think we met it at the science March. That's right. We walked by and I was like, Hey, is that Dana? Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember meeting you. Okay. Very briefly. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was kind of a little of like a, you were working a drive it. by welcome, I guess. <laughs> drive by friending. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like those. I'm good with those. I have to do them a lot. Dana Lazarus is um, a community organizer working with Organize Florida, a movement of community leaders coming together to fight for real lasting change across the state of Florida. She especially, she is especially passionate about environmental and social justice. Welcome to Viral. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hey. So, uh, fun fact for everyone, Dana and I go back to about as far back as we can go. I think yeah. we were like five years old. Maybe. Yeah, that sounds Maybe about even right. earlier because um, my godparents were and still are friends with your parents. You're right, because my mom yeah. was already working with uh, our friends, Gary and Jim, and yeah. I remember going to the office when I was probably two, and they fed me pickles and laughed when I made a sour taste. Oh, that that's sounds so about sweet. right. Yeah, so that sounds we're right. around two is when we knew each other. Probably, yeah, and there's there's a famous picture of, I think it was my fifth birthday party, where you're there, and you know, a bunch of other kids and we're just like all making silly faces at the camera. That's so sweet. I need to see that picture. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll find it. I know that it's up in Jim and Gary's house. So I, next time um, I'm there, I'll, I'll take a picture of it. I believe it's also at the natural history museum. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Perfect. Wonderful. I'll just head over there. Check it out. So you are a community organizer. What, what is that? You know, I didn't even know what a community organizer did until I was hired. Um, but it turns out that, in my opinion, uh, community organizing is probably the most important job in the world. <laughs> um, basically, uh, community organizers organize people for a common goal, um, usually to uh, under the assumption that people can make the best decisions for themselves and should have a voice in, in, in the decisions that are made 
and all of the things that like affect our lives. It can be political or it can be issues based. And the kind of community organizer I am is actually I do both um, working around policies and candidates, but also uh, between elections, doing issues based organizing and education and um, what we call changing the narrative. So um, kind of talking to people about issues that matter and also getting feedback from people to find out what people care about. So um, in terms of policy change, like thinking of the uh, the schoolhouse rock model of how nice. things get written into law, what is the role of a community organizer like yourself, um, you know, kind of jumping off the fact we talked about getting people all together, uh, whether it's to form a consensus uh, in a certain community about a certain issue, but then how do you turn that, uh, that energy into actual policy change? I'm doing outreach to people, constant, constant outreach to people and bringing them in to different uh, campaigns that we're working on. And the campaigns are focused usually on a policy change. Um, so like writing a bill and getting it passed or a campaign can be based around specifically changing a narrative around, for example, uh, criminal justice reform and getting people to understand mm -hmm. the, uh, this uh, prison industrial complex because people aren't going to want to get together to take action and change a policy if they don't understand what uh, the prison industrial complex is. And then and campaigns in order to happen also need volunteers. So it's a long process. Uh, some people say that community organizing is like event planning because there's a lot of events that need to be planned. So it's like a lot of logistics. There's a lot of logistics. There's a lot of data entry. There's a lot of um, theory in how best to organize the good people, you know. And um, so, but we have to pull in like education theory. Um, we have to pull in. Um, public speaking. Um, we do a lot of training. It just, it goes all over the place to be, to be honest. Um, yeah. which is common people. when you're working with people. <laughs> I mean, especially yeah. when you're trying to organize them, it's kind of like herding cats. So exactly. Yeah, it is. But, um, empowering people is definitely one of the most important and difficult parts of my job. Um, but at the same time, you can also look at the role of a community organizer as simply being empowering people, empowering communities. Um, so that's kind of the million dollar question. is How do you show people that they have the power within them to make change, um, especially when they link up with other people and act as a unit? Um, so there's a whole bunch of, you know, different tactics um, and you kind of feel out the person. Um, I will say that for the purpose of really making a difference in a usually relatively short amount of time, we have to find the people who are kind of already there and then plug them into action to take. Um, but there's also, it's like people will kind of exi exist on a bell, a bell graph. Like there's people at the extreme who don't care. And then there's the people at the extreme who do care and do want to make a difference and are take, making a difference. And then you have this huge curve of people, um, this huge pool of people that 
care but don't know what to do. They're just kind of sitting there uh, waiting. Um, yeah. And so my job is really to activate the people who already care while kind of pumping people up who are in the middle and saying, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like talking to people and showing them that there's outlets that exist and giving the motivational speeches and, you know, talking about, you have to do a lot of bragging, which is really counterintuitive. Yeah. But in this work, you have to say, no, we've done all this stuff. Like, look what, guess what I did last week? Like, it was so empowering and you can do it too. So, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so we're constantly sweeping in new people. It's funny because what I used to say to people when it came to trying to motivate people to take action on climate change, because it was so, it was just a, such a mind boggling thing to me that people weren't already concerned. I would just say, yeah. look, if we don't take action right now, like we are all going to die. And <laughs> I like, and I, that's just how I felt. That's how I feel when I go to sleep at night and when I wake up in the morning and I'm, cause I'm constantly mm-hmm. thinking about climate change. Um, yeah. But then I found that wasn't the most effective way to reach people. Um, <laughs> Uh, Are you seeing, you were talking about that, that sort of bell chart. Are you seeing now um, in the year 2017 that it's kind of more of a two hump chart where you've got mm. people who are like very convinced on one side of things, not as many people who are on the fence and then a lot of people who are convinced, but in the opposite sort of direction, mm. or are there still, is there more hope that there are some uh, convincible people? Oh, there's definitely still hope. Um, I think most people still exist in the in the um, mushy middle. Yeah, you call it. Um, I think in terms of like how much people take action and how much people care, the the point on the graph of people taking action and and caring definitely moved up um, after the Trump election. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's much, there's many, there's many more people who are paying attention and, and feeling motivated to take action because of the Trump election, um, which is, this is about trying to sustain that momentum. Absolutely. Um, it's funny because I've been doing activism and organizing work for about 10 years, which isn't very long in the scheme of things, but definitely before the Trump election happened. And it gets kind of, it is kind of frustrating to me because people do need to understand that this, a lot of this stuff was happening before the Trump election. Like the, yeah, all this polarizing stuff, um, these radical, terrible things happening, the executive orders, the hateful rhetoric um, is very in your face, but it's just showing signs of the sixth system that already existed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this episode, we talk about climate change and it's a significant threat to the health of everyone. But a lot of times uh, people feel like they really can't affect change, even if they really wanted to, because the effects are so broad and long-term. So what do you say to someone who you're trying to motivate to participate in a cause who says it doesn't make a difference what I do now, especially when it comes to climate change. 
climate change is such an interesting issue to be organizing around because mm-hmm. it is the most urgent issue while feeling like the least urgent issue. My coworkers work on issues such as racial justice, criminal justice, and reproductive justice. And, mm-hmm. you know, those are very personal to people. You know, women are going to say reproductive justice, um, or I should say people with... um People who can give birth, mm-hmm. um, reproductive justice is, is very personal to them because it, it threatens their lives right now. And you can draw a line directly from someone who has uh, experienced an unjust system. Um, you can see the effects. You can literally talk to that person. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, I, I do believe that individuals are being harmed by climate change. The line is a little bit uh less direct to a lot of people or or somehow that that relationship is um kind of harder to tease out and earlier i was talking about changing the narrative um because sometimes the people don't know what they don't know and when it comes to climate change i i'm currently working to change the narrative that people understand that climate change is affecting people right now exactly one of the things that has come up sort of as a recurring theme in previous episodes um, is finding an actionable message for an actionable audience. And it's not always about, you know, finding the most, like uh, the biggest message, like, you know, 20 million people will die by 2030 if this happens. Cause that's so nebulous and it's also far away. It's like hard to wrap your mind around. So rather than that, like we're, we've been discussing, even small effects like allergy seasons changing for people as a result of seasons becoming longer or warmer or right. drier or wetter or Lyme uh, disease or Lyme disease you and know, things like, gosh. because yeah, yeah there's going to be more ticks this season mm-hmm. than, than there have been in years past right. or um, mosquito borne illnesses like Zika and dengue and uh, malaria could become more prevalent in new areas, whereas they're kind of right now thought of as a tropical disease. It could come to new places because of changing climates. And I think um, trying to find those compartmentalized um, messages is important. What do you think about that strategy? So one thing as a community organizer that... um, we teach people is that your story is the most compelling bit of evidence mm-hmm. that exists. Cause I can show people graphs of sea level rise taken straight yeah. from the NOAA website and they won't feel an emotional reaction that makes them motivated to do something as opposed to actual stories. So yeah. for example, um, there is a um, brain-eating bacteria that can sur- that survives in freshwater lakes in warmer temperatures, mm-hmm. and it's showing up more and more. And there was actually a little boy in, I believe, La- uh, Lakeland, or it might have been Lando Lakes, one of the lake cities, yeah. that experienced that that passed away because this bacteria, you know, he was exposed to it in a lake that he swam in his whole life. Um, mm-hmm. and that really, that's a, that's a shocking story. Um, also 
some of the like concrete examples in our area that I've been using, um, like for my own life, are um, so the flea population is getting out of control. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. And they're like mutating. And I gross. I swear to God. Oh, this year we have well, my yeah. wife and I have two dogs, and they, you know, they had so many fleas on them. And they're like up to date with their medications and everything. And we were still having to pick them off. And I was like, geez. How is it possible? I mean, there has to be a connection between the fact that we haven't had a freeze in over half a decade Mm -hmm. when usually we are supposed to get them like every other year or so. Um, These insects aren't dying. Yeah. And there's a connection between the fact that we've had 16 of the 17 hottest years on record in the past 17 years um these these pests are able to survive so kind of like drawing those examples from real life to the concepts that we're talking about um and explaining that these things are happening right now uh, another one that um i've been really focused on to um to, to help people visualize that sea level rise is happening is um, the fact that we've had two 100-year flooding events in the past three years. So what is a 100-year flooding event? A 100-year flooding event is, it's the term for a flood that is only supposed to happen once every 100 years by by how scalable it is. So we've had, and this is in both St. Pete and Tampa, um, mm-hmm. There have been two 100-year flooding events in a row in the summer of um, 2015 and again in the summer of 2016. And people's homes are being flooded out. People's businesses, there's photographs of cars floating down the road. A friend of mine went to go drive to work and he drove through a puddle that ended up flooding out his engine and boop, he's out of a car. Oof. Oh, man. And that's been, that, that's been happening to a lot of people when these flooding events happen. And um, the fact is, so again, I can go back to the graph. Now that I've told the story and you're mm-hmm. roped in and I show yeah. you, look, we've had half an inch of rise every year for the past, um, since the year 2000. And so this flooding is related to this the rise of our bay. Yeah. Which is, which is accelerating at an, a terrifying rate. Um, I like that strategy because it's not like you're throwing away the graph. You're still using it, but you're bringing people in with a story, mm-hmm. something that they can relate yeah. to and an emotional reaction towards that kind of creates that memory. Um, and then they tie it to the data and the evidence. Yeah. Because we're always trying to find ways to motivate people and to educate people when you only have a short period of time of their attention yes, with all of the distractions going on in our world. Um, and and it is hard to get that moment and get a successful um, interaction with the public. Absolutely. Um, so we call it using the head and the heart. Um, yep. you, you have to have both. But they've done studies where um, they've asked elected officials who are constantly being lobbied. Um, they they picked out several different types of evidence, um, including you know facts and personal stories, 
and some other things. And they found that when an elected official goes to vote, the thing that they remember most is that personal story. So mm-hmm. this, is a, yeah. this is a proven strategy. And it's, it's used in sales and marketing. And, you know, you have to tell your story um, for people to care and pay attention and think it's interesting enough to really listen and not just hear you, but like listen to you. Yeah. Um, right. The Head and the Heart, also a really great folk band. Ooh. All right, all right. I love just it. throwing that out there. Oh, my gosh. Hit that up on Spotify. Add that to the list of band names. Yep. <laughs> They're actually a really good band. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Wait, it's a real band? Yes. Oh, I thought you were making that up. Oh, my wife is going to – she is yes, shaking her head that. right now oh, sure listening she, to this. Punch me straight in the it face. It is like her favorite. Oh, that's really – Sweet. I'm also terrified. Her. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> so uh, okay, that that's kind of a good segue into our into our last question. Finally, we always want to end on a positive note. Doing this kind of work can be emotionally and sometimes physically tiring. But what do you like to do to relax? And also, what are you currently reading or enjoying? Currently, I'm reading. White Oleander again. It's my favorite book. Cool. I read it at the spring, the uh, uh, Rainbow Spring today. Yes. So gotta go visit that nature while it's still pristine. While it's still pristine. That's <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and it's like nothing better to do on a day where it's 95 degrees than hit up the springs where the water is nice and cold. Yes. Feels so nice. And the sun actually feels good when your body, when your skin is freezing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, on that topic, my husband and I went to Chesahawiska. Is that how you say it? Yes. Okay, good. Um, we went to the Seven Sisters Springs yesterday, too. And it was awesome because we did some underwater cave diving. So... Um, yeah, I don't, I feel like so many people don't realize how many awesome springs there are in Florida and they're just magical. Like you can't believe it when you see them. You're just like, oh my gosh, it, it's like crystal clear and just so blue. It's amazing. Have you ever been to Devil's Den? No, but that's on my list. I really want to go. Who gets to name water. these springs? That's a good question. <laughs> I would love to go to Devil's Den. Devil's Den. <laughs> the Devil's Den. Which is actually a gorgeous, gorgeous like hole in the ground, but with like crystal blue water and it's a really great scuba diving spot. But I I don't know if do you do you just swim there, Dana, or do you scuba dive or I wanna learn how to scuba dive. I wanna get that license someday, but I just swim and when you go to Devil's Den they rent you snorkels and stuff, so you can actually oh, cool. the fish. Yeah, my husband and I just recently got into free diving, so we're we're starting to do some of that, but we really would also like to get into scuba diving so we can do more exploring for a longer period of time. So yeah. That's awesome though. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. What about you, Quinn? What are you up to lately? Um, I finished a couple of books recently. Um I finished my biography of Amelia Earhart, 
Awesome. How was it? It was very, very good. Don't tell me the ending. I, mm, no spoilers. Oh, no spoilers. <laughs> uh, but no, if you're interested in inspirational um, women hero- heroes, she's one of them. And uh, I'm also reading, speaking about inspirational folk, I guess they're just, I'm just going on like a aeronautics kick, but I'm reading um, No Dream is Too High by Buzz Aldrin. <gasps> Space Grandpa gives yes. us his, his wisdom. Space Grandpa. Oh, yep. yeah. Space Grandpa. Um, awesome. Yeah. I feel like I read something else recently, but I've been, I've been getting back in the groove. Thank you so much for being on our show, Dana. We wholly support all of the hard work that you're doing. And I hope that, you know, we as public health professionals and you as an amazing community organizer can do more collaborative work together because a lot of what we do overlaps and we kind of need each other, you know? Absolutely. Now's the time for today's public health fact. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or the CDC is one of the most widely recognized resources in public health. Many people may think the CDC is the head of public health in the United States, but the U.S. Surgeon General runs the public health system. Another misconception about the CDC is it only works to solve health problems in the U.S. In reality, the CDC focuses on health issues worldwide, especially since the amount of amount spent on public health initiatives is so unequal. For example, in 2000, $4,500 was spent per capita in the U.S. on public health compared to so many African nations that spent less than $10 per person on public health. That public health fact was brought to us by Sandy. Thanks, Sandy. If you have a public health fact that you'd like us to read on the podcast, please feel free to record it, send it to us via email, or you can just write it out and send it to us through our website. We have a wonderful contact form you can use. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Viral. This podcast was written and produced by Lindsay Grove, that's me, and Quinn Lundquist. Our theme is Take Your Medicine by the Quick and Easy Boys. If you like our podcast, let us know. Leave a review, visit our website, www.viral-pod.com, and tell your friends. But most importantly, please make sure to wash your hands.